This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Coming up on today's future award-winning Moranalytics podcast, EP191, I have a conversation with college and high school sports enterprise writer at the Buffalo News, Rachel Lindsay. I'm excited about this one for two reasons. Number one, I'm a big fan of Rachel. She's doing great work at the news. Not to mention, I have a soft spot in my heart for reporters who cover high school and college stuff. But also, I'm excited because it's the first episode in quite a while, frankly, where I get an opportunity to get back to what I love doing, what I think made this podcast grow to begin with. And that's just some long-form conversation, learning about somebody and giving fans out there listening a chance to learn more about them as well. We talk about Rachel's life and her career, one that's already seen stints at several spots across America. We talk about how her opportunity to work at the news came to be, her feelings on Buffalo, several other things. I even bring back the mini lighting round. First time I've done that in a while, so great stuff with Rachel. Also today, I have a movie review of Bad Boys for Life, the big Hollywood flick that stars Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. That review comes courtesy of Sean Chandler from the Sean Chandler Talks About YouTube channel. I am a huge, huge fan of this guy and his reviews. And I'll tell you what, if you were a fan of the first two bad boy movies from back in the day, you're definitely going to want to check this one out. Stick around for that. I'll have both of those for you in just a few minutes. Before that, though, I want to let you know that today's show is being supported by Audimute. So for nearly two decades, Audimute has set the standard for providing cutting-edge acoustic treatments for recording and sound environments. From your home studio to commercial settings such as the office, restaurants, gyms, auditoriums, Audimute is the best-sounding treatment company out there. That's because they don't compromise on the quality of their products or their service ever. Easy, green, affordable. My home studio was Audimute Acoustic Panels, and I'll tell you what, the difference has been remarkable night and day look you don't just throw up foam on your walls that you get real cheap from amazon decide it looks pretty and call it a day you can do that it'll look the part but it's not going to work visit audimute.com for info and deals including a free room analysis form and the ability to speak with an acoustic specialist do your sound do the people who hear it a very big service go visit audimute.com and on that note let's do this pod let's do it if you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. My guest today is a college and high school sports enterprise reporter at the Buffalo News. I've become a big fan of her work. In the year and a half since she joined the Buffalo News team, Rachel Lindsay. 
going on, Rachel? Thanks for coming on my little podcast today. Nice to meet you. Uh, hi, Patrick. Thank you for having me. I've listened to quite a few of it, your your podcasts, you know, with, with my colleagues, with Josh Barnett, uh, with Mike Harrington. And I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to join you. I'm, I'm a fan of yours as well. And I think it's, it's a really cool thing that you're doing, highlighting personalities and issues through the art of conversation. Yeah, definitely. And those are my guys. And we'll hit on some of them a little bit as we go on talking. I got to tell you what, I'm excited and I said this at the top, I'm excited to have you on for two reasons. Number one, because this is actually our first time having a conversation. Right. I've been a fan of your work from afar. I grew up, was born and raised in Buffalo, and now I've lived in Florida for the last few years. Obviously, I'm still very much in tune to Buffalo sports, so I follow your work from afar. I read your stuff specifically because Bills and Sabres, you know, you can get that stuff anywhere. But the college, the high school, those kind of stories, there's not as many choices. So I've become a big fan of your work. And also... I'm excited about doing this episode because, quite frankly, these are the episodes that I love doing the most, getting to know people, giving fans a chance to know more about you. And recently, I've had a lot of repeat guests on, so that story's already been told. You know what I mean? So it's nice to have someone on for the first time again so I can kind of revert back to, to the form that I enjoy doing and I know the listeners like as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited to be on to share my story to share some of the stories that I've been a part of in 23 years of journalism, and uh, you know I've, I've had a great time living and working in Buffalo so far, and I'm excited to share that enthusiasm with your audience as well on a new platform. Well, I'll tell you what, let's actually go back to the beginning. Now, you have worked in a lot of places. And because of that, usually I can look when I'm like doing a little bit of show prep, I'll look on like a, a LinkedIn pro profile or something like mm -hmm. that. And I can find out pretty much everywhere where you've been, where you're from. In your case, I don't know this. So I'm finding out again for the first time, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Because like I said, you've been around when it comes to jobs. You've worked in Texas, you worked in Maine, you worked in Ohio, obviously you're working in Buffalo now. And we'll talk about a few of those, but where were you actually born and where'd you grow up? I was born in Annapolis, Maryland, even though my birth certificate says I was not born in Annapolis, Maryland. So there's a little bit of trivia for you. It's a joke among my family. Uh, my parents are from Pittsburgh. They moved from Pittsburgh to Maryland in the early 1970s, in 1970, actually, because there were no jobs in Pittsburgh. It was a dying Rust Belt town. The steel mills were gone. The coal mills were shutting down. The teaching jobs were scarce. And uh, because of white flight, because of desegregation in the schools, you know, there were new opportunities in Maryland, you know, which is right just south of the Mason-Dixon line. And they were in a very turbulent time in America that they decided to settle down in Annapolis, Maryland. And one thing they found, there were a lot of expats from Pittsburgh in uh, Maryland as well. So my dad was a history teacher. My mom was an English teacher. They took jobs at the high schools and in the junior highs there. Uh, you know, then they started a family that had me and I have a younger brother as well. So I grew up uh, my entire teenage years in Annapolis, Maryland. I uh, went to Broadneck High School. Uh, you know, a famous alum there named Christian Siriano, who is not actually an alum, but he went there for two years. He's a famous designer who's been on Project Runway. That's what our school is famous for, is oh, Christian okay. Siriano. <laughs> we're very proud of Christian. I have a handbag of his. Um, and I grew up uh, watching sports, playing sports. I was a high school, college softball player. I, you know, I love to read. We always love to travel as well. And, and it just, it, and it was a matter of, I think when I, right after I graduated from high school, I had some serious cabin fever. So I said, I got to go out and see the world. So I went back to Pittsburgh. I went to college in Pittsburgh because I wanted to be around sports. I grew up loving the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I watched hockey and baseball and football. And 
I knew there was a very good opportunity in journalism in Pittsburgh. There were two major daily newspapers, four professional sports teams, the University of Pittsburgh, Duquesne University, went to a very small women's college, but it had a very good journalism and communications track. And back then it was just newspaper. That's what you wanted to do. You wanted to go in a newspaper and I wanted to combine my love of writing and of sports. And I think the cabin fever never really left me, which is why I kind of went all over the country chasing job after job after job. Yeah. So like when, when a lot of kids, they remember like when they first fell in love with say the game of baseball or the game of football, whatever it may be, a lot of sports writers can remember when they first kind of fell in love with journalism. Do you remember when you like first became attracted to journalism? Now your parents both being teachers and that have some influence on you kind of drifting towards wanting to be a journalist, more specifically sports journalism too. Well, I remember one summer I watched a lot of baseball. It was uh, right around the time the Baltimore Orioles were terrible, but we watched them every day. And Mm -hmm. I always write these really fun short stories about my friends and my parents who were educators always encouraged my brother and I to read, to read, to read. Well, we got three newspapers at our houses every day. We got the Baltimore Sun, uh, we got the Washington Post, and we got the Capitol Gazette in Annapolis. And my dad and I, for some reason, would fight over the sports pages. And some point that summer, a light bulb turned on in my head. And I said, God, if I could write and watch sports and get paid to do this, this would be great. And I think, you know, I was like in junior high at the time. And that's when I said, all right, let's do this. Let's find ways to do this. So I read everything. You know, I worked for my high school paper. I, you know, when I was in college, I answered phones at the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. I interned for the Pittsburgh Pirates, opening fan mail for the players. I you know, wrote for Pittsburgh Magazine as, as well. You know, I work at the University of Pittsburgh paper. And it was just a matter of just chasing this down and saying, you know, having pe- also having people tell me, you know, build your resume. Don't goof around in college. And I'll admit, I goofed around a little bit in college, but, <laughs> you know, didn't we all? Uh, but, it, you know, it was a matter of just really networking and taking advantage of a lot of opportunities that I have and, and building a resume. And in, in college, you know, I, I got my first newspaper job at a Suburban Weekly in Pittsburgh, and it was in uh, Monroeville, Pennsylvania. And the person whom I replaced in the position was Joe Moorhead, who, you know, was the former offensive coordinator at Penn State, coached at Mississippi State, and is now, I think, the offensive coordinator at Oregon. So I always joke, I'm like, Joe Moorhead was one of the best co-workers I ever had. And <laughs> if it wasn't for coaching football, he'd probably be a pretty good sports reporter right now. <laughs> so when it came to sports journalism and, and just writing in general, was it something that came really easy and naturally for you? Or was it kind of a process? Because I've had some writers on this podcast before where they said that it just felt really natural and easy. And I've had others, some of the best sports writers in the business that they really struggled. And it took them a long time to really kind of holding their craft, they would admit that when they first started doing it, they were kind of terrible at it. I think, I think we all were, I think we thought we were great at it, but then we realized it's okay. You know, we need coaching. We need help. You know, I I think about the, was it the the 10,000 hours rule? You know, you don't just become great at one thing. You work and you practice and it's repetition. And it's the idea of becoming, you know, having to be creative every night. You know, there are days I'll look at my work and I'll be like, God, how did I write that? That was like pretty good. Or God, how did I write that? That was terrible. <laughs> it's just an ongoing process. I mean, and when you're in college, you just think you're the greatest thing. You're, you're, you're writing for your college paper and your hot stuff. You're going to all the games. You're sitting next to the big dogs in the press box. But at that age, you know, I think it was my first job out of school in Brownsville, Texas. I had a really great editor. He was hard on me, not because he was a bad person, but because he pulled me aside after I 
And I admit I didn't do my best on a feature on a high school volleyball player. And he said, I expect better from you. I know there's more. This is a shell of a feature. You're going to, you know, he's like, you need to go out and do the work to do this. And I remember driving home that night crying because I'm like, oh my gosh, I've never had anyone talk to me like this. Maybe I should just go home. Maybe I should get a new side. I'm like, wait, you moved 3000 miles to chase your dream. You know, don't, you know, let this guy break you. And he ended up becoming one of my best editors. He knew how to motivate me. He knew how to push my buttons. His name is Andy Dubois, by the way. He's now the editor of the Conroe newspaper, publisher maybe of the Conroe newspaper in, in Texas. And he was a very, very good editor. He's very measured. He was fair. He was smart. He, he was demanding, but he knew how to balance that line. And I learned so much from him and I, I owe a lot to him. And I, I think that's also, you can also get better by surrounding yourself with people who will help you. And conversely, I've had editors who hadn't helped me, who tore me down, who made me feel terrible. But, you know, to answer your question, it came naturally, but I got a lot of help on the way. And I'm really thankful for all the help I got from just really, really good people I've worked with from around, around the country. When you first made a decision that this might be something that you would want to pursue for a career, was there a specific sport? Now, sports writers cover sports. It's not just one specific sport. But at least at that time, did you, when you envisioned yourself, when you used to dream of growing up and becoming a, you know, a professional sports journalist, did you have a specific sport in mind that you wanted to cover? Or was it just, I just want to do sports? I wanted to cover hockey. That's what I wanted to do. Really? I had, I had two dream jobs. My first dream job was to cover the Pittsburgh Penguins for the old Pittsburgh press, which shut down. Um, my other one was, I love Miami. I said, I would love to move to Florida, cover the Miami, cover the, cover the Florida Panthers for the Miami Herald. And I just got live in Miami and cover hockey. That'd be great. Of course it's sad because now there's very little readership for it. And they, you know, you were seeing how the dynamics have changed, but it was always the motivation of, you know, I think probably about 20 years ago when I really got to know people in the industry, I, you know, they, they said, you know, don't just shoot for that. They said, shoot for these big papers, you know, climb the ladder, think big. Right. Also, the more as I found as I went through my career, it was good to be able to cover so many sports because you become more versatile. You could slide into covering football or you can cover basketball or you can cover hockey. You know, I learned how to cover high school volleyball on my first job out of, out of college. I had no idea what volleyball was. And for some reason, it just figured out right away. And I asked coaches for help. But high school wrestling is another example. I was so intimidated by it, but I sat down with the coach and he explained scoring to me. And I also found that and I learned a lot of life lessons through that as well, that, excuse me, if you're, you're honest with people and you're humble, they'll help you and it'll help you become a better reporter and a, a better person and a better listener as well. So I found as I went through my career, it was good to understand more sports, but also good to understand how to communicate with people so you can understand better things. Well, I'll tell you what, when you talk about your two dream jobs, your you're better off where you are right now. Not coming down to Florida. Trust me, as somebody who lives there now and it is from Buffalo and misses it very much, you, you made, it worked out really well for you. I got to ask you the same question. I ask all my sports okay. writers the same question. So you went to Chatham for college. You also took classes Chatham. at Chatham. Chatham. And you also yeah, took classes, yeah. sorry. And you also took yeah. classes at University of Pittsburgh. Why did you decide to go there? And were there other schools that you considered going to? Or was it there for you all the way? 
I liked the small college aspect of it. It was a women's college at the time, so it was, it was very unique. But because there were, uh, you know, there were, uh, it was called cross-registration with the University of Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon with Duquesne, I got to kind of pick and choose my own classes so I could go sit in a class with 300 students and be a number, and I could go back to a, a lecture with eight students wow. where yeah. our voices could be heard. Yeah. But what was cool and what was kind of eye-opening about taking classes at the University of Pittsburgh was... I mean, one of my favorite classes there was literature of sports and a very demanding professor there. You know, we read the natural, we read Friday night lights. Um, we read Don DeLillo. We, um, you know, we, we read, I cannot remember. There was another book we'd read, but there were some very good pieces in there. I think there were about, it was a 30 person class, about 10 students were women. And I was one of two that constantly spoke up in the class, which could be intimidating, but it was very natural. But the more I looked around, you know, I knew I was knew I was with some very smart women in the class. They just didn't have an interest. They were only there, you know, because they needed the credit for their major, or they were afraid to speak up. And it's one thing I liked looking back at going to a women's college was that we had to speak up. We had no choice. In a way, it was almost survival because if you didn't do the work, if you didn't show up, if you didn't talk, you know, if you weren't an active part of that small community you failed. So there was a very high expectation going to a women's college as well. When I speak with women who went to Smith or Wellesley or, you know, or Mount Holyoke, they have a similar experience. Okay. So you go to school and you spoke of Texas. So you're from Maryland. You go to, you go to school in Pennsylvania, you go down to Texas. Eventually you're also in Maine, Ohio, and now of course, Buffalo. And I was what? in Colorado too. You were in Colorado. See, I didn't even know that. Well, I was another, in, Col- I was another in Colorado part of the for country. three years. Yeah. That even leads more to my question then. What were those experiences like for you? Not just honing your craft, because I'm sure each stop you got better at your craft with work, but also just being able to live in other parts of the country and experience different types of cultures. Because I'm sure you know this, different parts of the country, different types of people, different types of cultures. It all kind of blends into one thing. What were those experiences like for you, ultimately leading to, go to Buffalo, New York, which, of course, we'll spend some time talking about in a few. Well, in, in Texas, I lived in Brownsville, which is the southernmost city in Texas. Uh, our office was literally 10 blocks from the border of Mexico. Oh, wow. And so we would, back you know, in the late 90s, we would go to, my friend and I, my friend Chris, we would walk over and have lunch in Mexico. And it was funny because there was a, I mean, there was a, there was a gambling place called the Turf Club, and we would pay, place baseball parlays during our lunch hour. And we just, <laughs> it was fun, and it was just goofy. And we'd walk. It was back when it was it was safer too. The border is it's completely changed in, in twenty years, but it was also the first time I'd ever been in a community that was predominantly. Hispanic. And it was a very poor part of the country as well. Uh, I would say, especially with, with women in athletics, it was about 10 years behind the rest of the country. You know, we talk about the title nine babies, you know, the girls in Brownsville were really just getting into sports. They were finding out that sports could take them somewhere besides Brownsville. It was a very different culture, but it was very eye-opening. I met some great people, you know, one of my best for two of my best friends, one works at the San Antonio express news. The other one works, uh, works for the Diocese Brownsville, made friends there. I'm still friends with a lot of people there. I, I, I really learned how to cut my teeth journalistically, and I learned how to live on my own for the first time about, you know, you have to pay your bills on time. You know, you, you can't do this, or, you know, it's, it's not a good idea to try to get in your car after you party in Mexico all night. You know, call a cab. It's okay. You know, I learned a lot about responsibility, but then I reached kind of a ceiling there where I felt like I'd really 
you know, outgrown it. I'd done everything I need to do. And I said, I need to find a new part of the country. And I was like, well, it was, I was dating a guy at the time who lived in Colorado. That didn't work out, but I got a job in Fort Collins, Colorado, lived there. And I think that's really where I, I really started to feel myself growing as a journalist. I had a great staff, at Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, and Colorado in the early 2000s was a really fun time for newspapers and for journalism. You had the Denver Post, Rocky Mountain News Wars, the Colorado Springs Gazette was a great paper. You had all these really awesome little papers like the Boulder Daily Camera, the Longmont Times, the Greeley Tribune, Fort Collins, Broomfield, um, Pueblo had a great little product too. And there were so many class acts I, I learned from about journalism, about life. You know, um, Tracy Ringlesby, who was covering the Rockies for the Rocky Mountain News, just a genuinely good guy. He was a guy who could pick up the phone, call Bud Seeley, and Bud Seeley could call him right back. My coworker, oh, Tony wow. Pfeiffer. My coworker, Tony Pfeiffer, color, covered Colorado State for 25 years. Just a brilliant, brilliant person. He's so funny. and He's just a true renaissance man. Another one, you know, I made, made great friends there as well. My friend Pete Bigelow, who became the editor of the Ann Arbor News and now works for Automotive News. I learned so much from those people. And I another one, I still became friends with them. And then I got a really good opportunity to go to Portland, Maine, to work at my first Metro in 2004 uh, at the Portland Press Herald. And I was recruited by them, which was really flattering. Sure. And I got to, you know, cover high schools there. I had to cover 50 high schools. I had to be on top of everything. Uh, and then I got the chance to cover hockey, which was like a dream come true. It was, I covered the University of Maine and the AHL Portland Pirates when they were the Sabres farm team in the late, you know, late uh, 2000 or early 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s. And so, you know, I saw Nathan Gerby play there. I saw a Tyler Ennis play there. I wrote a big story on Tyler Ennis. Um, oh, Kevin really? Deneen, yeah, Kevin Deneen was the coach at the time. And I had a really funny moment where I'd gone into his office and I forgot to turn off my phone, which, you know, I, I was so embarrassed. And my phone rang in the middle of an interview with Kevin Deneen. And my ringtone at the time was Brass Bonanza. And, <laughs> and I was so embarrassed. I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he just looked at me and grinned. He says, Lindsay, you're all right. And we just, we, it was just funny like that. And his assistant coach was Eric Weinrich, who played at Maine and who played for the Whalers. And I loved it because I, you know, I really found out that hockey was like a big community. It was this huge sport, but somehow everybody knew everybody else. Like I did a story on Dale Hunter's son who was playing for the pirates. And I remember his name was Dylan Hunter. I remember him when he was like a, a five-year-old running around the Washington Capitals practice rink in, in land, you know, in, in, in it was in, in Crofton or Lano or, or, or Rundle. I can't remember where it was, but it was in the Western part of Anne Arundel, Piney Orchard Rink. And he's like, I can't believe you know all this. Annapolis is so great. And he ended up becoming like a really good source of mine. Just to, it was just a talk, but it was, it was really cool. And the University of Maine, I covered Gustav Nyquist when he was a Hobie Baker finalist. Um, you know, Ben Bishop's last year at Maine was one of the first years I covered them as well. Jimmy Howard would always come back. So it was cool just to see these guys, you know, really kind of in the start of their career and just even grow into these big stars. So I thought that was my, you know, my dream job. So this is it. I could cover hockey forever. And then I lost my job in 2011. Um, I was one of 63 people who were laid off from the Portland press Herald, which it was, it was heartbroken. I, I, I thought I was going to be there forever. My, my husband was working at the Augusta paper, which was our sister paper. You know, we were ready to buy a house. We were four years into marriage and it was just, it was just bad. And then a few months later, two openings at the Toledo Blade in Ohio to cover college football. And it ended up the managing editor was a huge hockey fan. And I think we talked more in my interview about hockey than we did about job. 
same thing. The sports editor there covered the Hartford Whalers. So we had a lot to talk about, but you know, it was a lot of it was our philosophies lined up. It was a union paper and Toledo was a lot like Pittsburgh where my family was from and my husband's family's from Pittsburgh as well. Although we did not meet in Pittsburgh. Uh, that's another, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but, How um, did you meet? No, 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 no. We, let's go there. I got to know we, that. I got to ask We you. met online talking about the Pittsburgh Steelers. Really? That's cool. It was, it was right before the, the, the 2000, the Super Bowl in 2006 between the Seahawks and the Steelers. Oh, wow. And we were like, he was living in Kansas. We were like pen pals for six months. And then we were on vacation in Washington at the same time. And our first date was a Washington Nationals game. And we haven't looked back in 15 years. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so yeah, we moved to Toledo and covering, covering a big time football program. I learned a lot, learned a lot learned about the politics. I learned how to use open records covering a state school, but I also got to cover hockey again. I got to talk about the Red Wings. Uh, I covered NASCAR, which I knew nothing about, but learned really quickly. And it's like a big soap opera. So that was fun covering that. And, um, you know, it was, it, I, I, I really enjoyed it. And it took me into digital because I knew that was the way our industry was going to go work with Cox Media Group. But it was all football and about after two years after six years of covering Michigan and two years of just covering football I was burned out I was seriously considering just leaving the profession it wasn't a good experience yeah I learned a lot but at the time it was not personally satisfying and um you know and when they when Cox Media Group announced it was going to shut down their digital properties or verticals as they called them in 20 June of 2018 it was a release and I remember I sent it, I sent my resume to the Buffalo news a day after they announced they were going to shut it down. And the Buffalo news called me a day later and it was Josh had just taken over. Josh Barnett had just taken over the sports department and said, let's talk, you know, let's, let's talk about, you know, kind of what we want to do here. And it was one of about five or six newspapers I talked to and people asked me, are you sure you want to go back into newspapers? And I said, if they're all going digital, I have that experience. And I said, heck, I'd even go back and cover high schools because I know I'd be happier doing it. And the end of the last, the end of 2018, summer of 2018, I was packed up my car and drove to Buffalo. And here we are a year and a half later. Let's take a break. I want to let you know that today's episode is being supported by 26 Shirts. Over at 26 Shirts, a different Buffalo theme design is sold every two weeks and then bam that's it that's a wrap for that shirt here's the best part about what they do for every single shirt sold they make a donation to a specific worthy campaign or to a charity each and every single time since launching in 2013 their designs and shirts have managed to raise and donate several hundred thousand dollars that number grows literally daily Del Reed, his crew, they do such an amazing job. They enrich the lives of so many people. It's great to see. Not to mention, these are outstanding-looking design shirts. They're comfortable. They're sporty. They look good on you. I have several myself. Head on over to 26shirts.com and see what cause needs you this week. All right, so you mentioned coming to Buffalo now and that you had other potential places that you might have went to. If you were going to stay in the newspaper business, may I ask like what well, a couple, you don't have to name like specific papers, but like another cup, was it like around the New York region? Was it up North? Was it around that area? It was all over the country, actually. 
And I think it was, it was, I was surprised. I, you know, I thought, gosh, you know, who's going to want to hire a veteran sports reporter who, you know, I thought I had failed at digital. And I was pleasantly surprised by how many conversations I had and that, you know, Hey, maybe I'm not washed up. Maybe I still have something to, to offer to another industry, but, you know, going back through, you know, all of these different places, you know, I looked at digital, I, I, you know, I, I looked at, you know, teaching journalism in Buffalo was a really good fit. I, I loved the, I loved the city. I hadn't been here in 20 years before I interviewed. I drove in, I drove in over the Peace Bridge and I went, holy moly, this is a legit city. Wow. And I drove around and I said, they felt like Pittsburgh. I you could eat your way through the city. It was very outdoorsy. It was, just, you know, finding a new identity or something really exciting about it. And, you know, I, I drove back to Michigan after my interview and I was like, man, I said to my husband, I said, Tommy, if I, if they offer me this job, I want to take it. This is where I want to be. And it was just, it was really, really exciting. I, I really like Josh's, you know, his vision, you know, his philosophies and his ideas for the department. I went out to lunch with Mark gone. We had a really good conversation as well. I'd sat down with the editors. I kind of explored the city on, on my own as well. And I said, you know, man, you know, Buffalo, I, I could, I could live here. My parents live four hours away. So I could be in the car in the morning and drive down to see them in the afternoon. And I really like the idea of covering college and high schools. You know, like you said, colleges, it's, it's almost a hidden niche here as well too. This is a bills and sabers town, but you know, I've got a chance to go to the, you know, chronicle the, um, UB men's team going to the NCAA tournament. You know, we have Jarrett Patterson at UB who's just had one of the most prolific seasons of a UB running back sure. as well. And I think it's also a really good opportunity to tell some of the, the stories about, you know, that are going, that surround these programs. Like today, I just sat, I had to sit down with Felicia, like at Jack, the women's basketball coach at UB, who, if you can ever have a chance to have a conversation with her, do it. It just, there's so much candor so much perspective and just there's an authenticity about her that I really, really like. And, you know, I, I, back in December, I wrote a piece on Asian A. Johnson, uh, who's on the women's basketball team at St. Bonaventure. She was homeless for five years in New York city. Wow. And she said, all I had was basketball to, to kind of keep me going is basketball in my mom. And it, to have an athlete open up about that, and to put their trust in you to tell you their story, that is a powerful, powerful thing. I mean, I, and that was the kind of story I wanted to respect and pay justice to because not everybody gets a chance to tell that story. And if we don't have someone covering colleges here, or outlets who cover colleges here, how are we going to be able to you know, shine a light on these people? And I think with Asian A's story, that's also to me, it's the intersection of sport and society, which is a big reason why. I really found myself growing into appreciating that about sports because anybody can cover games, but who can tell a good story about someone who went through homelessness or a cancer survivor, or, you know, there are two guys, um, Matt Otwinowski and Mike Kenefick at UB who were stem cell donors within the last calendar year. The odds of one person being a stem cell donor is one in 430. There were two on a team of one team at UB. That's an amazing thing. And it's a privilege sure. to be able to tell those kinds of stories. No doubt about it. So now Buffalo was able to sell you the, I'm talking about the city, obviously rather easily, but when you, especially when you're married and you relocate, it is kind of a team decision. Like you kind mm -hmm. of alluded to that was the hubby on board right away with the thought of going to Buffalo. Was it kind of like a little back and forth? Was it a difficult decision in that regards? 
he was on board. Um, he was a copy editor in Toledo at the blade for six years and knew that he's, he said, you know, I can find a job anywhere. Don't worry about me. He's, he's pretty, he's a pretty self-sustaining guy. Um, he actually works at channel two, uh, doing digital content as a digital content editor. So make insert the joke about working at, at rival, you know, at rival media outlets there. Right. But, um, you know, he, you know, we just said, we'll figure it out. You know, we can, we'll make this work. We have enough money saved. And, you know, he, he did a lot of cool things. He, he, you know, he explored the city. He'd gone back to Pittsburgh. You know, he took his time. And I, you know, I kind of said, you know, honey, I had a summer off trying to look for a job, you take some time off too. And he ended up, you know, he's been at channel two for about a year now, which he's, he's really enjoying it. And he's, you know, really likes the fact that he could help out digitally as well. But I remember when we first came out to look for housing, it was the weekend that Chris Collins got in, got, got oh, indicted, yeah, yeah, which yeah. was really fun. It was kind of, <laughs> that became my soap opera for last year. I, I really loved my colleague, Jerry Zremski's reporting on it. And I just, I couldn't stop doing it. But at first he's driving in Buffalo and he's kind of looking around and I'm thinking, Oh God, he's not going to like it here. And it just, it just took him a little while. Finally, he's like, yeah, I could see us living here. And he said, very convincingly. So I said, it was like, Phew. it was like, great. You know, and you do, it was especially when you, you know, you have another, you know, when you have a, a spouse involved in this, another person you have to think about it, it's, you have to bring that into consideration. If it had been 15 years ago and I was single, I would have been like, yeah, no problem. I've taken off. But there was, there was that issue. Was he going to like this here? And I'm, I'm very fortunate to have incredibly supportive spouse who, you know, he's, he's been along for the ride with me. And we, when we moved to Toledo, he was there and found a job. When he moved to Buffalo, he was there and found a job. You know, we've gone through some pretty, you know, big things in our marriage too, but it's, it's, it's important. It's incredible to have a, a partner who supports you. And when you, you know, when he, when your partner has problems, you got to support him as well too. I mean, we're a team. Yeah. No, there's no question about it. And when you are in a profession that sometimes relocating is just the way it goes. My family went through the same thing, you know, going from Buffalo to Florida, we all had to be on board. There was adjustments, including a, our son too. So it wasn't even just my wife and I, it was also a son involved in that decision for sure. Now, when it comes to the Buffalo news, I got, Somebody's there to been on the podcast several times. Jay Skursky, Mike Harrington, Josh, who you talked about, Josh Barnett. Uh, Keith Boucher hasn't been on the podcast, but he's a good buddy of mine. How's it been? I don't, I don't want to ask you how it's been working there because I know you enjoy that. But was it a pretty big adjustment for you from the previous jobs that you were at coming to the Buffalo News? It was kind of like business as usual for you. It was business as usual. The hardest part, I think, was was learning about all the new places and people I would I would have to meet. I think I used Google Maps every day for the first three weeks I was here. <laughs> sure. I would write down names of everybody. I started a source list of people to contact. You know, you have to kind of find the rules of engagement. You know, who can I text to ask questions or who do I need to talk to as well? I always got Williamsville, Northeast and South mixed up as well too. Like I think of one time I'd written the Williamsville East Spartans, you know, oh, yeah, Williamsville yeah. North Spartans right. as well. You know, I, I had a roster of UB football players that I carried everywhere with me just because I, I didn't, I didn't know. And then basketball with the success of the UB men's basketball team last year, that became a full-time beat as well too. I mean, that was covering every game home and road, really ingraining yourself, learning to trust people, but also drawing the line of, Hey, I'm not your friend. I'm here to cover you. And you know, Nato, it was a pro about that. The players were, were very, very good about that as well. And it was, just, it was a really fun experience and it was, it was very positive. And I, I learned a lot. I learned it was a grind. I think 
I came home after basketball, the NCAA tournament and just slept for about 14 hours. And then, you know, two days later, find out Nate Oates is gone. Is it all right? Here we go again. So right. that was, that was the unique challenge of it was treating like a beat. I'd never covered, you know, college basketball like that before. It was always football at Michigan. Occasionally I'd cover basketball, but it was football driven. So, um, you know, and I was, I was really lucky. I was able to lean on some people in the department as well. I mean, Mike Harrington is, you know, <laughs> I always tell people, I'm like, you know, his Twitter persona. Yeah. He's, he's, he's like, you know, kind of the cantankerous dude, but I'm like, man, you want him on your side. There's no in between with Mike. I love Mike Harrington. Mike's my guy, man. We've went out, we've had wings together. He's been on the show like three times. Mike's one of my favorite guys, but yeah, his Twitter personality and his real life personality tend to be, you know, two (laughs) completely people. Mike's been a fan. He's been a fantastic colleague. I'm really lucky to consider him a friend. I think, I think the world needs more people like Mike Harrington, not Twitter personas, more people like Mike Harrington. And the the staff is, the staff's great. You know, Vic Carucci, another guy, pick up the phone and call anyone in the NFL on the call him back. I mean, another one, Vic cares deeply about the paper. He cares deeply about his beat. I, you know, I've learned a lot from him as, as well too. You know, and, and I just got, I got on the list, you know, Jim, you know, what our copy desk chief? Just, you know, the, just the epitome of cool. Just, just always keeps it together. And, and Josh, it's amazing. I mean, he came in last summer and had to basically rebuild that sports department. Right. And he's, Josh has seen a lot in his time in journalism. He just keeps going and, you know, he's innovative. He's forward thinking, you know, he knows everything that's going on. He's, you know, he, I have a lot of confidence in him and I, I really like what he's been able to do. And I'm, I'm really lucky to work for, you know, work for and work with someone like Josh Barnett. Yeah. Josh is a good guy too, man. I talk to him pretty often. We talk a lot of wrestling. He's one of the few right, sports right. media people, buddies of mine that I can actually sit there and talk some wrestling with. So that's pretty cool. Now you kind of, you came to the Buffalo news, at least the sports department anyway, at a fairly turbulent time. I mean, the ship is certainly steadied since then, but at that time, the sports department, it wasn't far removed anyway from losing a lot of veterans from mm-hmm. for a lot right. of different reasons. And they'll, they'll have been covered ad nauseum. We're not going to talk about any of that, but were things a little hectic in that department for you at first, or were things already starting to get settled back into, you know, normalcy by the time that you arrived and started, which was around what, August of 2018? August of 2018. Yeah. My, yeah, my first day was the last week of August, right before Labor Day. It was hectic at first because there was so much to cover. I was helping out with high schools. I would go to the Sabres morning skate because we still didn't have a full-time Sabres writer. Lance Lasowski came on in October uh, from Pittsburgh. And I was, you know, helping out with high school football. And I love covering high school footballs. I'm still the geek on the sidelines who takes her own stats. Um, uh, (laughs) You know, it's, you know, there were days I'd cover a Sabres practice in the morning, write two stories, you know, at a blog post. I'd go home, take a nap. I'd cover West Seneca, West West Seneca East football at night. And people are like, are you tired? Are you okay? I'm like, no, you know, after being burned out on one beat for so long, it, it really reinvigorated me. It, journalism got exciting again. I think that was a really fun part was really helping to be able to reconstruct what the Buffalo News Sports Department wanted to be. And I mean, I, I, me- I remember reading the Buffalo News when I was covering the Sabres farm team in Portland, Maine, you know, and it was, it was a great product even then. It's always been, you know, I remember reading Alan Wilson's you know, pieces in, you know, on the bills, you know, when I was younger, remember we would stop in Buffalo on the way to Canada, Jim Kelly, you know, when I went to the hockey hall of fame in October, I paid my respects to Jim in in the hall and, 
you know, Mike and I, when Mike, and when I first started at the news, you know, Mike introduced himself to me and I kind of laughed as Mike, you and I have actually exchanged quite a few emails when I covered the, the Portland Pirates 10 years ago. And he went, oh my gosh, that's right. So it was, it was cool to have that familiarity in the Buffalo News. It's always been a really respected product. And, you know, it, it just to have the opportunity to work here, I'm, I'm really thankful for it. I want to switch gears here a little bit. I want to play a clip from Wednesday night. And as a female sports journalist, I want to get your reaction to this. New York Knicks forward Marcus Morris made some pretty disparaging comments towards a player from Memphis. He was angry with them at their game on Wednesday in the locker room. And in the process, he really put his foot in his mouth, not just once, but twice. He turned his rant into something that is really stupid, derogatory towards women. Let me play this clip for you. And then again, as a women's sports journalist, I want to get your reaction after. Here, here's that clip. Here's that clip. I don't think it's a build-up, man. I think dude is just, you know, he played the game a different way. Like, he just had a female tendencies on the court flopping and throwing his head back the entire game. And like I said, man, it's a man's game, and you just get tired of it, man. And then, obviously, at the end, I was very unprofessional. They win in the game. It's a good team. And, you know, he does stuff like that, man. When you say unprofessional, are you referring to the steal at that point? Is it kind of code that you don't go for those plays late like that? No, the steal was cool. You got the steal. It is what it is. But when you step back and shoot a three, you know what I'm saying, and try to, you know, low-key like rub it in that they're winning, you know, it's just unprofessional, man. It's soft. His game is soft. He's soft. It's just, you know, just how he carried it, man. You know, it's just very woman-like. Now, he apologized on Thursday morning, but still a really ignorant thing to say towards women, especially in today's day and age. I mean, you have to be better than that. As a woman sports journalist and you hear something like that, that's got to get under your skin, as it should. It gets under my skin. It, it bothers me, but I think it's also symptomatic of a, a bigger issue we still face. And this isn't just isolated to sports journalism. Think about male-dominated dom- professions like tech. You know, Think about what's going on in Silicon Valley. It casual sexism still exists. Now, this was a more of a macroaggression. I still see microaggression. You know, when, uh, you know, when someone, you know, like myself, like a woman tries to get into a conversation about sports and we're cast aside, or I don't know how many times I've gone to a practice and I've heard a coach call his players, you know, the male players, ladies, or, you know, I've heard some very just unusual things like, why are you throwing like a girl? And it's something it's, we have to think about the coded language we use as well too, you know, and I think of the casual sexism, especially saying, you know, know, feminine, feminine tendencies or being a woman, it downgrades, you know, our set, our sexism, you know, and I wonder, you know, and I said, well, what, what does it, the question I like to ask, what does it mean to be a woman is being a woman being weak? Is it being, you know, I guess, is it being subordinate? What is that definition? It's something I've took a hard look. I think back to about eight or nine years ago, um, and I, I feel weird bringing this up in the wake of the death of Kobe Bryant, um, but there was a time Kobe Bryant used a homophobic slur in a game. And I had a very interesting conversation with a player at the University of Maine. We were just talking, and I asked him, I said, have you ever found yourself using that kind of language? And he kind of sighed and he said, you know, when you're in the heat of things, things come out of your mouth. And I said, but is it acceptable? You know, do you think other people like hearing this? And he said, no, they really don't. I kind of said something like, oh, well, you should use this, you know, all indulging, you know, it's all, this all encompassing cuss word instead because you won't offend anybody by using it, but you'll offend everybody. He laughed. I think it was more surprised to hear me say the word. 
but it was just, it was an interesting lesson. I think this is a lesson where, you know, think about the words you say and the actions you use. I mean, it's 2020, but you know, I've still, you know, there are still men in journalism who won't talk to me or accept my opinion because I'm a woman. And that's something sometimes you have to learn to deal with it and move forward of it. It makes you stronger. But in this case, you know, I also think that there, you know, especially at that level, at the national level, maybe the international level and the professional level, people should be thinking better about this as well. It's not about political correctness. It's about, you know, about don't delegitimize someone else in society. I think it's that all encompassing thing there as well too, but it, it, it is bothersome to hear that, just hear someone publicly say that. And it also gives other people license to do that, which is something you don't want it to be a habit in society either. And furthermore than just that, you know, it's one thing to be on the court or on the ice or on the field in the heat of the battle and say something regretful. I still think that's a big problem. Don't get me wrong, but that's heat of the moment. This is in the locker room 45 minutes after that game ended. He had all kinds of time to get his shit together, compose himself with mm-hmm. microphones in his face, think about what he was going to say. And even after doing that, that's what came out of his mouth. That's where I have the biggest problem with it. Right, right. There's, there's, there's a conscious way to stop yourself from doing that as well. You know, I also kind of joke around, you know, and Twitter is a very popular medium. One of my colleagues in, in Michigan, his motto is always, hey, think before you hit send. That's, it's very, yeah. very important. You know, even now when I write something, even when I'm about to say something, I, I, I catch myself. Like if, if I'm thinking, you know, is this something that someone's going to screen grab and it's going to go around the world? Yeah. I don't think that would be a good idea to do that as well. And I don't say you have to watch every word you say, but just if you think your mom might get upset about it, don't say it. You know, that's kind of my rule, rule of thumb. And my, my mom's a pretty tough woman. So I, you know, I, I think about that. You know, even you know, there was an instance where I had tweeted something and I, I just kind of looked at it. I said, yeah, this doesn't sound good. I just deleted it and thought, please God, I hope nobody screen grabbed that. But, you know, it's just, there is, you know, you could offend somebody. You could hurt somebody by doing that as well, too. So it's definitely time, you know, to think of, just to consider some of your actions, you know, who could I hurt by saying this? How do you feel about social media in general, particularly Twitter? Because you're in the age of sports media and you know this as well as anybody. The old days of being a newspaper reporter and that's the extent of your job. That's over. You know what I mean? That's that's it's right. not that's the only part of your job in today's world. You understand the significance of social media and how important it is in today's world to not just promote yourself, to get your work out there, mm-hmm. your company and, and so on and so forth. But at the same token, so that's good. Twitter's good, obviously, because if Rachel Lindsay writes a story, it could be on Twitter and people could be reading it 15 minutes after it's posted online. Mm-hmm. That's good. But Twitter, I mean, all social media, I'm talking specifically Twitter here. It could be a really ugly and nasty thing as well. You see the worst in people. There's a lot of trolls out there. I'm sure you've experienced it at some point too. So how do you, how do you feel as a whole about social media? Because some sports writers out there, they enjoy it. They relish it. Others are like, well, I wish, you know, it was never around. So we were all on the same playing field. I need to be on it because I need to be, but I really don't want to be. I, I think, tw- I think Twitter, I think social media, they are great facilitators for communication. They're great facilitators for opening up conversation, for getting the word out about something. You know, I, I don't live my life on Twitter. I, you know, I, we, we have a rule in our house. 
no phones at the dinner table. Um, you know, no phones in, in the bedrooms. You know, I will not check my Twitter feed until at least a half hour after I've woken up. Uh, you know, it, it, I've learned to set boundaries with it as well. You know, there are times like I put the score up and people say, oh, well, you didn't tweet anything for an hour. I'm like, because I was interviewing, because I was writing stories, because I was on a deadline as well too. Uh, it, it, for a while, I would say probably about nine or 10 years ago when the advent of Twitter, I made it my life. I'd wake up in the morning, I'd check my tweet deck, I'd have my phone alerts on. I remember going to Las Vegas one year and spending half my three days there on Twitter because I wanted to see what people were tweeting about the Stanley Cup. And I just kind of learned how to pull back a little bit as well. And we're also in an age where it also seems like a lot of our personal and interpersonal value is placed on our Twitter and our engagement. And I, I go to college classes and I see kids, all they do is tweet and they don't know how to have a conversation. And I said, no, you know, it's a great way to put things out. It's a great way to meet people, but don't make it your existence. So I've learned to set boundaries with myself and social media, but I say for the most part, I enjoy it. As far as the trolls go, the mute button's a wonderful thing. You know, if I don't engage with somebody, I don't have to. That's yeah. the great thing. We can figure out how to step away from it when we can. No doubt about it. What has been your impressions of Buffalo and Western New York as a whole, now that you've been around for about a year and a half or so, obviously you're well-traveled. So the weather probably wasn't a big factor as it might be for some other people. Like I had Marcel Louis Jacques from ESPN.com on and he had never seen snow a day of his life. He's from oh California, lived right, in Charlotte. Right. That's culture shock. This wasn't as much culture shock to you, but just generally speaking, Buffalo, Western New York, what have been your thoughts? It's It's been fantastic here. I, I love Buffalo. I've become a big Buffalo cheerleader. I, I love the summers here. My first summer last summer was incredible. I kayak on the Buffalo River. I went to concerts at Canal Side. You know, my husband and I spent a day at Allentown Art Festival. We did the Buffalo things. Awesome. But, yeah. you know, we just, you know, I live in North Buffalo and uh, you know, we just, we love our neighborhood. We love the people here because it reminds us a lot of Pittsburgh, which is another place we would have loved to have settled. And I said, you know, I'm okay with living in Buffalo. My parents love it here. My friends come to Buffalo and they have the same reaction that I did when I first moved. They're like, what a great surprise. What a well-kept secret. And I'm like, don't tell anybody else about it or else people are going to move here and turn it into San Francisco. So, <laughs> I, you know, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to afford my rent anymore. But uh, we've had we've had a blast here as well. I've had a, I've had a really great time here as well. And I'm, I'm tired of packing up and moving. I've, I've, I've had, I think 10 addresses in the last 15 years. And you know, I, I, I don't want to pack up my house anymore. <laughs> I'm uh, I lived in North Buffalo too, specifically. I absolutely love it there. I love, in fact, when I go, I get back to Buffalo a handful of times a year and every, I go in the summer and I just love going to one of like the little patio bars mm-hmm. in, the, in the summertime and just people watch and hang out on the patio, have a drink. And it's just such a good vibe down there on that Hurl Avenue scene. I got to yeah. ask you about wings. I mean, that's like my thing on the podcast. You love wings. You hate them. Not every chicken wings aren't for everybody. Are you a wing fan? And if so, what are a couple of like your favorite spots that you'd like to hit up? I've been a wing fan since I first ate Buffalo wings in Severna Park, Maryland in 1988. <laughs> and it was a, it was a guy from Buffalo who owned a hole in the wall place called wings to go. And they had 26 different kinds of sauces. The hottest was called homicide. And I ate a homicide wing when I was like 16 years old. And I, my dad, my, my dad was like, that's when I knew you were my kid. But <laughs> you know, we came here and we've done the wing tour. Uh, my favorite local wing is Bob and John's on Hurdle Avenue because they're meaty. The sauce is spicy, but it's not like, 
you know, stomach upsetting. I can walk around the corner and get it. I love it. I still haven't been to Duke's Bohemian Grove. That's one on my list. But I've been to Lennox. I've been to Gabriel's Gate. We did Anchor Bar when we first moved here because you guys have to. That was on my dad's bucket list. Right, you gotta there. try it. I have to try it. Yeah, you know, we 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 you know we have we went to Duff's and we joke we're gonna do a wing tour at some time and we want to bring people on it. But I'm like, give me a chicken wing with blue cheese. Give me like 20 chicken wings of blue cheese on there. You know, this is this is how I know I'm my father's daughter. He said to me, "So, have you heard of this buffalo wing festival at at you know at at, uh, at Salem Field?" I'm like. Yeah, I've already got tickets. Come on up. So we spent a day just eating wings. We loved the Josh Allen wings from Wyoming. They were fantastic. So they, they won. So it was, yeah, just give me give me a good plate of wings from Buffalo. And I'm said, I don't even want to eat wings anywhere else in the country. I'm like, please, I live in Buffalo. Yeah, I can get these anytime. You know, I'll try something else in another part of the country. You come to Buffalo and you eat my wings. I'll tell you what, I don't eat anything except chicken wings every time I come to Buffalo. Right. Down here in Florida, there's a Casa de Pizza which is actually a Buffalo-owned place. It's about 10 minutes away. I enjoy their wings. I'll tell you what, though. This is a first. I've never had someone on the podcast before and talked about wings, and they've had a place as their favorite that I've never been to. I've never had Bob and John's, and I've been to tons of places on Hurdle. In fact, I think I've power ranked 60. I've done reviews and power ranked 67 different wing spots in Buffalo. It's actually not one of them. I've had geckos, and I'm talking on that Hurdle area. I've had geckos. I've had empty pockets. I've had the Wellington Pub. I have not had that. Now, I, I tell you what, that's going to be one of the, if you like it that much, I'm definitely going to have to give it a shot. That's not on my list yet. I haven't had them. I say, let, let me know when you're in town. Uh, my husband and I'll come and meet you. I would say, we'll walk over and grab a plate. They're, they're my, they're my, they're, they're my favorite. Like I've already planned an order for the Super Bowl to, to walk over and get 20 of them. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, this is what, it, I'm like, this is what adulthood is sitting and eating wings and watching the Super Bowl. And, and, <laughs> you know, and I told a friend of mine that who's a Buffalo, like when she's what she says to me, wow, you're going to eat wings and watch sports. She's like, she joked with me, you're total Buffalo. And I was like, <laughs> I take that as a compliment. Yeah. All right. Shout yeah. out, shout out Bob and John's one last question. And then I'm going to end with yeah. the mini lightning round. Like I do with all my guests, the first okay. time guests anyway. All right. I'm going to ask you the age old advice question. You've spoken a lot throughout this interview about people that helped you giving you advice. You never know who may be listening to this podcast right. right now, who you might be able to influence, maybe an aspiring journalist out there listening today or something like that. For anyone out there who may be interested in having a career in this same field that you've carved for yourself, what's the best advice that you could give them? Wow. Where do I begin? I'm just going to give the, I'm going to start the lightning round early. Read everything. Keep writing reach out to people. Don't be afraid to start conversations. Be kind to people. Join a professional organization like APSE or the Association for Women in Sports Media, National Association for Black Journalists. There are so many of them. Don't just limit yourself to sports either. Learn how to cover courts. Learn how to call the cops. Learn about how to read contracts because those are an important part of sports as well too. Network, network, network. Don't be afraid to email or DMs, you know, a longtime journalist because our dirty little secret is we love to help other people. Don't let, let everybody know, but, but do that, you know, and always try to keep learning and follow your curiosity. It's great advice for sure. All right, let's end mini lightning round. Nothing fancy here. I'm just going to ask you a handful of random questions. Not a lot of deep thought required, whatever, whatever's in your mind, that's going to be your answer. You good to go? Okay. All Good right. to go. Let's go. Favorite all-time athlete? Mario Lemieux. Okay. Favorite city that you visited, and you've certainly been to plenty? 
Venice, Italy. Okay. Who was your first celebrity crush? Fred Savage. Fred Savage. Okay. Fred Savage. <laughs> yes. And I, I still watch what just happened on Fox. I, and I'm just like, I want to party with this guy. He seems like a lot of fun now. <laughs> What's your go-to snack? We're not going to count wings. So sweet potato tortilla chips and ranch dressing. Okay. What movie have you rewatched probably more than any other movie? Back to the future. I love that movie. That's one of my favorites. It's my favorite. Too. It's my favorite. <laughs> I'll a quick story. Side note. Michael J. Fox obviously was a star of that. When I was a kid growing up, he was obviously in family ties. I literally wanted to be Alex P. Keaton. I, used, wow. I went to a public school in the city and I used to wear a dress shirt and tie all of seventh grade because I wanted to be Alex P. Keaton. Alex P. Keaton. I love it. Well, Back to the Future, I know every line to it. At the end of the movie, I sing along to Back in Time. I'm a huge Huey Lewis fan also. I just found out, I have watched these movies for 35 years, that in Back in the Future 2, I did not know this until very recently, Biff's Hotel is actually the clock tower. I never knew did that. You know, did you know that? I did, I did not. not know that until about two or three months ago. Just mind blown. And I, my husband says to me, you just found out something about Back to the Future that you never knew. This is a, this is a red letter date. That is really cool. I, I didn't know that. No idea. So you, so you learn something new every day. Yeah, you do. <laughs> and now you're going to be looking for the clock tower, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dips, and, dips. and we went to Las Vegas. We, we, the first time I went, I stood in front of the plaza and I said, oh my God, that's Biff's. That's Biff's. So it was a really funny moment. So we still call the plaza up, in, up on Fremont Street Biff's. Wow. Like, yeah. na name a TV game show that you feel like if you were on it, you potentially get dominated, whether it's something that's current or, or in the past. I would get that I would get dominated. No, that you that could dominate. Oh, cash cab. Cash cab. Okay. Yeah. All right. Last few here. Instead of doing a podcast right now, I have you via Skype. Let's pretend we're at one of these little patio bars on Hurdle Avenue right now. Okay. And they got some karaoke going on inside. And in this world, you're like an amazing singer. You're the best singer in the bar. And you're going to go up there. You're going to grab the mic. What song are you going to pick that's going to get the whole crowd really into it, singing along with you? Like, what would be, if you have one or not, what would be your signature karaoke song in your own mind anyway? Oh, Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. I'm a huge Freddie Mercury fan. Nice. I did not appreciate Queen's music until after Freddie died. But his, just his, his spirit, his voice the vibe it just moves me and it was also one of those songs you 30 years ago 40 years ago you heard on every station you heard oh, yeah. it on you heard on the r&b station you heard it on the urban station you heard it on the adult station you heard it on the top 40 station and that's one thing i loved about it, it was one of those songs just such crossover appeal everybody would get up and dance to it and everybody knows the words to it and that's a song you just have so much fun to it as well you can point you can dance you can walk around the room with it so much energy in it Oh yeah, people get fired up. They hear that song. So if you yeah. had, if you had never gotten involved in this industry in any fashion, journalism, and or let's just say it didn't work mm -hmm. out for you early on, what do you think you may have went on to do with your life? Now you said that you considered getting out of the business at one point. If you would have, what do you think you would have tried to do with your life? A year and a half ago, two years ago, I wanted to be a teacher. But I think if it had ended early for me, I would have become a chef. A chef. Okay. Yep. I, I would have gone to culinary school and I, I, I'd become chef. Okay. Last two questions here. 
if Twitter were to send you a note right now and say, we have a new policy and you're only allowed to follow one person on Twitter or one handle, it doesn't have to be a person, it could be an organization, whatever it may be, but you can only follow one person or one handle on Twitter and that's it. What would it be? Can I just leave Twitter instead? You can. Yeah. <laughs> Protest it and I, leave. I just- I'd just leave Twitter and I'd start buying magazines and subscriptions and, you know, doing that. I, I, you know, I think I'd find another way to, to limit the FOMO and, and, you know, and find other ways to build relationships. I mean, that's another thing I didn't even get to touch on. So much of journalism is about being resourceful. I'd just be resourceful and find another way to get my information. You know what? Frankly, if all things were even, I wish there was no social media. I mean, it's too much (laughs) of a disadvantage. It's like what, what you do or with what I do in my podcast to not utilize Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that. But if all things were even, I would love, I'd love to have no social media. I'd love to have to read everything in a magazine or like you said, just converse more. We could have a whole separate podcast just about that goddamn subject alone. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just, and that's, I worry with social media that we're losing personal engagement in the art of conversation. So, you know, when you offered, you know, to say, Hey, come on. Bars, I'm like, absolutely. I love to talk to people. I think this is a great way to get to know people. And I, and I hope that you know, with this new decade, we're going to bring that back. I really hope to see more of that. Well, let's end with the last question. It'll be about the art of conversation. So if you could have three dinner guests from any era ever, dead or alive, doesn't matter. Three okay. people at your dinner table tonight, and you're going to have some good eats, good conversation, a drink or two, whatever. Three people, who would you have? First, I'd have my grandfather, Furino Lenzi. Died about 30 years ago, but he was the biggest sports fan that I ever knew in my life. And one of my greatest memories with him was, with, I'd say, in his last six months, we watched the Penguins and Flyers on television. And he was so thrilled that I knew all the stuff about hockey because he had never watched hockey until we started watching it together. But he was a huge Penn State fan, huge Notre Dame fan. I think seeing what happened to Penn State would have broken his heart. Um, so I'd want to bring him back and I'd want to talk sports with him. Okay. And um, God, and I'd say that, you know, I couldn't have be, I could, I'd have to have my dad there too, because I know my dad would want to witness this as well. Okay. And um my husband, because I want my husband to meet my grandfather as well. I think they would have really gotten along. All right. That's cool. So it's a family affair at, at yes. the dream dinner table. And we, for you. we just, we just, we'd sit and eat and drink and talk sports the whole night. That's awesome. Good stuff. Yeah. All yeah. right, everyone give Rachel a follow on Twitter at Rachel M. Lindsay. Of course, check out the Buffalo news, subscribe, yeah. support your local journalism. Rachel, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. I've had so much fun. So I hope we can do it again. That interview was brought to you by Pulse Cellular. Today's lifestyle demands the best in wireless. And with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available. Whether you're going with Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, doesn't matter what you're using currently. You can switch to Pulse Cellular, get unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data, coast-to-coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65, or you can get four lines for just 45 bucks each. Wow. And by the way, that also includes hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and up to 50 gigs per line. For all you travelers out there, Pulse has you covered in Canada and Mexico. Plus, text and data in over 210 countries worldwide. 
all with the best phones, or you can also bring your own phone. That's pretty awesome. Get the best user experience on mobile at PulseCellular.com. So before we get out of here today, I got a movie review of Bad Boys for Life, the third installment of the famous movie franchise that first aired on big screens 25 years ago. This review comes courtesy of my man, Sean Chandler from the Sean Chandler Talks About YouTube channel. Sean was a guest on this podcast. I really enjoyed having him on. He does great work. And from time to time, he allows me to play the audio version of some of his movie reviews from his YouTube channel that we think collectively are of interest to listeners of this podcast. Sean's Sean Chandler talks about YouTube channel. It continues to blow up. He's up to over 146,000 subscribers now. It's hard to grow subscribers on YouTube. Many of you guys out there, you have your own channel. You know how hard it is. I certainly do. 146K, that's really impressive. Pounds out quality movie reviews, reactions, power making videos several times per week. Really good content he churns out. As far as Bad Boys for Life, of course, it stars Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, who reprise a role as Mike Lowry and Marcus Burnett. First airing in 1995, the sequel came out in 2003. In this third installment, the guys team up to take down a vicious leader of a Miami drug cartel. It's a star-studded cast, and of course, again, the 25-year anniversary of the first movie. All that's nice, but does Bad Boys for Life live up to its considerable hype? Well, let's get Sean Chandler's take right now. Here it is. After over 15 years, the Bad Boys return to the big screen. So let's talk about it. Mike Lowry must partner with a new investigative team and convince Marcus not to retire in order to track down an assassin whose mission is personal. Feels a little bit like Will Smith has been talking about making this movie for about 10 years and typically when a movie gets stuck in development hell like that, the end results aren't typically the best. So how did this movie turn out? Well, I'll tell you in just a second, and let's get started talking about the good. And I'll cut straight to the chase. This franchise has not skipped a beat. Smith and Lawrence still have all the chemistry. It's still funny. The action is still exciting. The real surprise here is that this movie's probably the most emotional and personal of the entire franchise. So let's break all of that down. So of course, at the core of this franchise is Mike and Marcus, and this movie plays out the paths that each of them have been on. Marcus is the family man. He's been married over 25 years, and so he's in a very interesting place in his life because of all of that, and you see all that in his personal side. Mike, however, is the forever bachelor, and some of the choices he's make might be coming back to haunt him just a little bit inside of this film. And that makes for an interesting dynamic, but it actually works because that's what this franchise has always kind of been, contrasting these two very different lifestyles of the two men, but they still have great chemistry with each other and they have the family together and then Marcus has his family back home and so you see all of that in this film at a new phase of life and I love it when movies are able to successfully do that. The other element inside this film is they add kind of this new investigative team of kind of these young people and sometimes when movies do that it feels like either the new squad is trying to take over the film or they just don't fit quite right. I thought it worked. In this movie, they found the right mix inside it. When they first 
first showed up, I was like, oh man, are they really gonna do this? Is this gonna be like the Expendables 3 and our main guys take the backseat? That's not what happens. They're a nice spice inside of it, but our two lead guys, they remain front and center, and you just enjoy the extra dynamic of these new characters, and each of them has something about them that you like, and they play against certain expectations and play off things, especially with the computer hacker guy. They do some real fun stuff with his character as you move into the third act. Vanessa Hudgens is one of the people on this squad, and she absolutely does get in on the action, and so it's a ton of fun to see her doing something different. Over the last month, I've watched all of the high school school musical films and so nice little contrast between that and what she does in this film if you've ever wanted to watch her kill some people you get to see that a whole lot inside of this film speaking of the action it's all handled very well now it's not as big and glossy as it was in part two when the second film came out Will Smith was kind of at the peak of his stardom, and so was Michael Bay. So that movie probably had a far bigger budget, much kind of like more over-the-top Michael Bayisms inside of it. This movie is just as exciting. The chases are memorable, and the action is shot in a way that you can see everything happening, but it's not necessarily as glossy. I mean, that second film was massive in the way all of the action happened. This one is just as exciting, but not necessarily as big budget in the way that it's done. But Mike has a couple of different fights inside of it that are brutal when they take place. There's a motorcycle chase that's a ton of fun. And then the big slam bang finale has all the explosions, shootout stuff that I want inside of an action movie. Also, this is a very graphically violent action film. And I love that. I actually saw a review saying, this movie is excessively violent. I was like, yeah, that's one of the things that made it awesome. But people get impaled when they're shot, blood sprays everywhere, people get crushed by cars. A bunch of that stuff happens that, as an action movie lover, I loved it. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this movie packs an emotional punch. A lot of life happens throughout this film in a way that works with the story that they were telling and the amount of time that passes. It's all out able to play out properly, but you have victories, you have losses, you have tragedy. Our characters are at a very different place at the end than they were at the beginning. And on just a story level, it's probably the most memorable and distinct of the stories inside of the franchise. A lot of that going back to it's a bit more personal and it's not just them trying to take out generic drug dealers and things like that. When I think back to the first one, it stands out mostly because Taya Leone is staying at Mike's place throughout the whole runtime. And the second one is kind of known for these just big, massive, over-the-top action sequences. This one you're gonna remember a lot more for the character moments and the plot that happens, and that's what kind of makes it stand out a little bit more. And because it is a film that has some solid character moments with great action and a story that you remember that has some personal touches, it's a really nice addition to the franchise. With that said, let's move on to the mixed aspects of the film. This isn't good or bad, but this is a movie made for fans of the previous two films. It's not trying to reinvent the franchise for a new era. It's not trying to expand the action genre. It's a continuation of the franchise and it does a great job at that. But if you didn't like the previous movies, 
you're not gonna like this movie. But if you did like the previous movies, you're probably gonna have a lot of fun with this film. Also, there's a really nice cameo in a wedding early on inside of the film. And then there's a mid-credit sequence. Actually, it's pre-credit sequence. Then again, I guess the whole movie is a pre-credit sequence. The scene plays like a mid-credit scene, though it plays right before the credits roll, that teases some stuff that I know that I'm excited to see. From there, let's move on to the bad. The big thing here is that it is a throwback 90s action movie, and it has all the genre tropes that you would expect. Obviously, I can't go into specifics, but there's some very clear 80s, 90s action movie tropes that take place here. And there's no shortage of action movie eye roll moments. There's a part where they're spying on some people with a drone and you'll be thinking to yourself, wouldn't someone notice that drone flying behind them and humming behind them? In shootouts, everything explodes, a table explodes, in a car chase, a tire gets shot, the car explodes, and these cops are driving through a populated city with cars everywhere just firing machine guns recklessly. If stuff like that bugs you, there's a ton of that inside of this movie. I'm not bugged by it, but there's some things they probably should have thought through a little bit better. There's also a few times throughout the runtime where it slows down a little bit. It tells a pretty big story and in the transitions between the big events, it can lose a bit of momentum at times. But a handful of criticisms aside, this movie was so much better than I expected it to be. While it doesn't do anything new with the genre, as an action movie fan, this movie gave me everything I wanted and it actually delivered more heart than I expected, took more risks than I thought it would, and it really paid off for me. It's a B plus overall, it's an eight out of 10 on the entertainment scale, and go see it if you're a fan of action movies. I want more R-rated action movies, and this one was a lot of fun, so please go see it. Thank you so much for watching, and keep talking movies too much. All right, everyone, that is gonna be a wrap for this episode. Very big thank you again, Rachel Lindsay from the Buffalo News. She was fantastic. Thanks as well to Sean Chandler. Another great movie review. Don't forget to check out the Sean Chandler Talks About channel on YouTube. Also got to thank today's show sponsors, 26 Shirts, Pulse Cellular, and of course, Audimute. So check it out, everybody. If you have not yet subscribed to this podcast already, please go ahead and do that right now. Subscribe to the podcast, rate and review. Only takes a couple seconds, and I can't emphasize this enough. Really helps me continue to grow this show a lot. You can listen or subscribe to us on Apple, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are found. Got new shows every Tuesday and every Friday. And when you subscribe to it, you're going to get a set to whatever device that you listen to your podcast to. You're going to get it before anyone else does. Also, go hit up Moranalytics Podcast on YouTube. Got original audio content that you're only going to find there. Not even going to hear it on this podcast. I also have highlight clips from current and past episodes up there. Again, Moranalytics Podcast YouTube channel. And then last but not least, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Pat Moran Tweets. I'm constantly tweeting out podcast updates, upcoming guest polls, prize pack giveaways from time to time, general thoughts banner with other people on Twitter. Twitter is pretty much where I park myself. I'm there all day, every day. So if you want to catch me, follow me on Twitter at Pamoran Tweets. 
Thanks again so much for listening. I say it all the time. I really mean it. I appreciate each and every single one of you that are taking time from your busy day to give this podcast a listen. The car, the office, the gym, home, doesn't matter. I appreciate it so much. I know there's a million other podcasts out there. So if you're taking your time, you're listening to this one, that humbles me. I'm so grateful for that. So thank you very much. Enjoy yourself. Stay safe. Talk to you again soon. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.